Your health is our priority. Each series, it's our goal to make sure that we provide you with experts and guests that offer multiple perspectives so that you feel supported, empowered, and less alone. Like the work we do? Buy us a cup of coffee. Or tea. You can leave us a tip over at coffee.com slash the hip podcast, which is ko-fi.com slash the HIP podcast, or with the link in our show notes. When you buy us a cup of coffee, you not only support the work we do, but also gain access to early releases and downloadable resources. Again, that's coffee.com slash the hip podcast. Welcome everyone to Health It's Personal. We are now in our parenting series, which is just so exciting because we've had the pleasure of talking to so many interesting and insightful people and share their parenting journeys. So today we had the chance to talk with a wonderful mother with a very unique story. She shares her journey with her son struggling with addiction and how ultimately she was able to help them get through it together while as the caretaker remaining grounded. Absolutely. It was such an inspirational conversation. I loved it so much. We just talked with someone recently who had mentioned that there is purpose in pain. And I think Deborah is really an example of that, that she's taken her painful experiences in her life and really um, used them for good. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking about how we kind of chatted about this, but um, it's just, I keep thinking about it and, you know, we've all been on our journeys. We're all on, on our journeys still, and we wouldn't be who we are today if we haven't experienced those things in the past. Yeah, exactly. Remembering that you are on your own journey and that you shouldn't compare yourself and that whatever experiences you have will help you in your next part of your journey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it does. And, you know, like, like you said, it gives us those tools and those experiences to draw from. Even if it's not the exact same experience again, we're more prepared to face whatever life throws our way. Yeah. Deborah was a real inspiration for me because she went through something that is a complete fear of mine as a mom. And it's your child being addicted to something. When we live in fear, we kind of let our mind go those places and we imagine things or imagine what that would be like or come up with a plan about how you would deal with it. But reading her book for me was so impactful because I don't see myself as strong in Mm. some of those moments, but I felt like I could be strong. And I feel like hearing what she went through helped me to think about if those things do happen in my life or if something does happen to my children that I have to go through, that it doesn't have to be the end of my own life or I can still have happiness. I can still have peace. I can still make choices for myself. I'm sure that would be really difficult as a parent to choose what she calls patient love, where you're giving your child as much as you can while still empowering them to make decisions for themselves and not trying to go into fix it mode. Yeah. (laughs) You know, which is such a default. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I obviously don't have kids, but in past relationships, I've definitely been that person where I wanted just to take control of the situation instead of let it play out and help them learn on their own. Yeah. And I, uh, I won't, share because these are personal experiences, but there are several loved ones who I know or have known in the past who I've, I've, you you definitely want to jump in and do whatever you can, but sometimes it's such a good reminder that they have to figure it out on their own. It's their journey and you you can just do the best you can to support and give all the tools that you possibly can, but you can't take over for them. You, like she kind of talked about today, they're maybe making decisions that you wouldn't make for them, but they made those decisions and where do we go from here? We just have to, you know, be in the moment and go from where we are now. Andrew's such an amazing human being and he's helping others. And maybe that was yeah. the path that he needed to be on in order to do that. Yeah, exactly. And we talk about stigmas and a huge one is blaming the parent or a caregiver uh, for the child or young adult's actions or missteps. She talks about how Andrew says to her all the time that he doesn't blame her at all for any of those things that those were his choices and 
that they just had to get through it together. Yeah, so these are really hard things to talk about, but she gave some great advice about how some things that she might have done differently and some things in my life that I've done uh, with Max and McKenna is I've tried to like role play with them to the point that um, one of my friends asked me to role play with her daughter once. Oh, wow. She was like, okay, I need you to come over and, uh, and, and do a role play. And we did it and it was awkward <laughs> and funny. But um, I think when you can laugh about it and, and also just kind of, what's the word I want to say? Like when you can laugh about it and also make it not so serious, sometimes that's helpful. But role playing really helps because I've found in my own life that when you're in certain experiences, sometimes I've been caught off guard in the past, like something will happen that's inappropriate. Someone will say something and it catches me off guard and I don't behave in the way that I wish I would have. And I can only imagine what that must be like for a young person if an adult gets caught off guard by that. I've talked to McKenna before about If you're in a situation at a party with someone, what would you say or, you know, whatever, something like that, so that when that actual thing happens, she didn't feel so caught off guard. And we come up with kind of fun and realistic things to say. So, yeah, or or we did, you know. Yeah, (laughs) we still do it. it. Yeah, we could still we could still be useful. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody comes to you and says, hey, why don't you try this at a party? maybe telling your kid saying no or tell them that they're crazy or like you know (laughs) isn't always the right Ah. approach because when you're a teenager what you value the most are your friends and your connections and you don't want to be the outcast and you don't want to be embarrassed and so we would come up with things like uh maybe a joke I could make or or say like oh my god my mom would kill me if I came home high or you know like Or put the blame on somebody else, like the parent, like, oh, I would, but I have to be out of here in 20 minutes. My mom's got a super strict curfew for me, you know, which wasn't true, but something where you can. Yeah, she's such an idiot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You don't want to ruin that friendship, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's not obviously the most mature way to handle it. Getting on the level of where the teenager's brain is at and giving them an option that's realistic for them is important. I was just thinking this is also useful not only for kids and parents, but for being a friend too. Like you said, the relationships, the friendships are so important. And I think that you could use those same approaches if you see your friend in a situation and even as a a full grown adult, (laughs) if you see someone in an awkward situation, whether it's maybe harassment in public or at work, or if it's being offered or, you know, feeling pressured for whatever reason, uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of seeing connections, even as a friend, just being understanding or even helping other people when you see them going through that. Yeah. Were drugs talked about when you were younger, Sean, or did you just kind of know? Did you did you have a lot of open dialogue or? So my dad was a special agent and what he did was he was a forensic scientist. So he would either be solving murders or other crimes like on Law and Order SVU basically, uh, or he would be going undercover and the OSI in the Air Force does the huge drug supplier busts not the dealers but like where the drugs are coming from and they will work with the fbi and all the other agencies so it was around my whole life and i would go into my dad's office there'd be a ton of drugs like they had recently (laughs) confiscated i'm not kidding it's just funny that you asked me because i'm like yeah (laughs) i was like what's that and he's like that's cocaine i'm like okay (laughs) i'm not even kidding i was like six so uh, and I'm not, I'm not even making that up. I was like, all right. <laughs> and so it's never been like taboo for me because we just talked about it yeah. and they would, yeah, my, that's so you cool. know, we would talk about experiences that, you know, um, you know, that they went through in, in those situations. And also my dad was forced to do the dare program and he hated it. He didn't think it was very helpful or useful. He thought it was a useless waste of time. And it turns out he was right. So, <laughs> um, but they're still trying to do it apparently. But it was funny because we had the shirts and everything to give out and it was embarrassing, but that was my, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking we, we actually talked about something that I found important because it was about marijuana and how it can be a gateway for some. It is inherently not by itself something that will get you into other drugs, but addiction goes far beyond just the substances themselves. It is something that's a part of individuals too. And that's not something we'll we'll dig too far into, but um, there's a lot of 
research out there, science and medical advice out there that just kind of explores addiction. You know, for some, they have to avoid marijuana, even if the marijuana itself is not addictive chemically, right, or physiologically. But it can provide you the, you know, you'll think about it and you're like, wait a minute, you know. The escape's <laughs> addicting. Because I just know so many people who are so passionate about the medical benefits of marijuana and absolutely, but at the same time, it's like we've been talking about, it's not the same for every single person. We have to keep that in mind. And for some people, it can be really tragic. So again, it's not black and white. There's, you have to take in that human element and that's so important. And that's why stigmas can be so damaging. This was just such an incredibly informative and inspiring conversation. She's so passionate about telling her story, which we value so much and we thank her so much for being so brave. So please grab a cup of tea and enjoy this episode with author Deborah Edwards. Health is understanding what you need. Being informed. Finding that balance of mental and physical. Building yourself a support system. Figuring things out on my own and not letting it hold me back. You do kind of have to advocate for yourself. Because health, it's personal. Deborah, welcome. We're so glad you're here and willing to share your really unique and inspiring story. First, we'd love just to learn a bit about you and Andrew and your relationship. Uh, thank you. Uh, first, uh, before I start talking about that, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share what uh, our story uh, was like and to maybe give people hope if they by chance are um, in the middle of the struggle or some insight, right? Yeah for people who are raising children, yeah. you know. Andrew and I, you know, um, we have an amazing relationship and an amazing relationship that has built over the years. And part of that is because of going through the journey, but part of it was that, you know, when he was growing up, uh, a good chunk of the time, it was him and I. So there's a million meaningful memories that we have. And, you know, uh, he was just my little buddy, you know? Yeah. Uh, Always an amazingly uh, funny and witty and quick, uh, wicked smart kid. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't mean there weren't frustrations as there are for all parents. But uh, those years were uh, really wonderful. And uh, I think part of us navigating the journey the way that we did, you know, maybe is some of the foundation that existed you know, through his growing up years. So yeah. I myself, I'm a, I'm a consultant, I'm a coach, uh, author, speaker, blah, blah, right? I focus a lot on uh, strengths-based, talent-based uh, development in organizations, talent-based collaboration. Okay. Um, that's kind of my jam. That's great, yeah. Yeah, so Andrew was a sweet, fun, interesting boy. I tell McKenna and Max all the time that if I had a time machine, I'd go back to those times. They're so much fun and such a special time. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. Yeah, so your relationship was always really strong Yeah, and continues to be so today as I understand it. So how did your journey change a bit um, along the way? You know... In the teen years, up till about uh, Andrew was 14, 15-ish, pretty much he spent a lot of time with us. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we would, his, his dad, his stepdad uh, traveled for work until he was gone during the week, home on the weekends. On the weekends, we would play and go to church. Uh, but around uh, that mid-teen period is when we started to see some shifts and that is when things got there was friction you know and some of it it's it's really easy for you to liken it to and this is what i did right to the teenage years mm -hmm. honestly I, I believe that it was me saying okay this must just be part of what it is to be a teen that allowed me to miss some things uh, earlier on mm -hmm. he became um a little bit more disconnected, not as interested in spending time with us. Again, some of this stuff seems normal, right? Right. Um, more closed doors. It really wasn't until I started to see a change in mood and things like lack of eye contact or wanting to finish conversations very quickly that I started to think, hmm, this is odd. Oh, so that was kind of a sign for you? 
you know what? Not not necessarily in full awareness then. then yeah. Right? It's that beautiful right. uh, thank you for retrospect and yet wouldn't have been nice, right? I think that's an important distinction to make, you know, that retrospect, like thinking, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, when you're in it, you, part of it is you don't want to be quick to assume the worst. Absolutely. You also don't really want to consider the worst. Yeah, mm -hmm. scary. It's very scary. And then there, of course, if, if it actually is in your world, there comes a point where you, you can't deny. Mm -hmm. Right. So how old was Andrew when, when he started taking drugs or when you knew that he had a problem? Around 16-ish uh, is when he was smoking marijuana with friends that we didn't know about. It really wasn't until... 17 where okay we have a problem and that's clear right that we now know that you are okay and then it progressed it for for him into other drugs from there he would tell you that for him marijuana was in fact a gateway drug other people wouldn't agree with that or for them it wasn't but in in his experience it was it was the beginning of what opened the door to going, oh, what else is there? Mm. Andrew's addiction went from, you know, hanging around his friends, getting high, as a lot of teens do, to trying uh, drugs. Uh, there was a little bit of rebelness, I'm going to imagine, in his quest, if you will. And uh, sadly, there are certain drugs that uh, once they enter into your system, it creates a, a beginning of a physiological dependence um, that uh, becomes super destructive and harmful. So he moved from dabbling with drugs of a lighter nature, if you will, to doing heroin. And in heroin, it actually changes the chemistry in the brain. And there emerges a, a different human being and there, it, there's a craving that's created in the body. There's a, they call it dope sickness, uh, where it's so painful that the addict then gets to a place will, where they will do just about anything in order to get something to make that stop. And that is the cycle of it, right? So Andrew went through this and then decided at a certain point to try a uh, recovery program he relapsed more than once. Uh, I think in the beginning, you know, I didn't want to believe relapse would happen. I wanted to believe that we could, okay, we, you know, we're here, we, we're good. Yeah, right? Understandable. But I was told that um, it's part of the deal and, and it turns out to be true for almost everyone who's battling addiction. So uh, I, he relapsed twice and, uh, and he's been sober for five years. As a matter of fact, the book was released on his fifth sobriety birthday and that was super oh wow. that's amazing that's incredible yeah and it's incredible because he's helping others and uh, he's living it powerfully and what he's gone through has put him on his own personal growth journey yeah At 27 he's a pretty evolved person he's still so young and he still has his whole life ahead of him to have that perspective and make a difference that's really amazing and it's so difficult to imagine going through that journey and then being able to help others. I think that's especially noteworthy because it takes enough energy just to get through the day for ourselves. And we, you know, to be there for other people is, is incredible. Deborah, you wrote this beautiful book, Hi, about Andrew's addiction. But throughout the book, you talk about a lot of experiences in your life that were challenging, that almost maybe prepared you to handle his addiction in a certain way. Um, would you mind telling us a bit about that? Yeah, sure, I would be happy to. You know, my life uh, had, as many people's lives have had, right? Uh, different situations drop in at certain points, some of them really challenging. My father was an alcoholic and that, in and of itself, he was a lifelong alcoholic, by the way, mm. that in and of itself created an impact on me. It created some codependency in me that I didn't realize existed. Mm. 
you know, I've been through things like uh, the loss of my sister at a very young age. I've been sexually assaulted. I've uh, had some challenging marriages and some, you know, financial things that have happened in my life. And and each one of those things, I I through maybe the series of them learned to navigate them with the objective of what can I take from this experience? Because within my belief system early on, I took on that we're all given these experiences to create the refinement in us. Mm. And that belief, that strongly held belief has been what has helped me to navigate each one of them in a way that allowed me to take from it its power and uh, most beneficial substance, if you will, on to the next part of my life. And because of that, as Andrew's addiction was, was moving into our lives, it allowed me to have a presence of mind, an awareness that kept me in my experience, but also an observation of his. And I, I believe that that's part of what helped me to begin to navigate better and thereby uh, allowing him to navigate on his own. And that's one of the hardest parts. Parent, especially because it's the last thing that uh, you would want your child to be going through. Mm -hmm. And as a parent, you want to fix it. You want to stop it. And, and the truth is it's for them to fix and stop and not for you. I had to painfully come to that realization in the midst of it. And that it's not easy, but I really believe that many of the previous experiences in my life kind of brought me to the place where I could look at it through a different lens. And that aided me in going, okay, universal law of the individual journey. This is the, mm. the thought that and his is his and mine is mine, Deborah, okay. What are you going to do? You know, how are you going to approach this? How can you let go so that he can? How can you let go so you can? Yeah, I love that. I, and this is something I've been very passionate about for a while now is that everyone is on their journey. It's their journey. And I think that what you've said is so insightful. And what resonated with me the most is that these are not individual experiences. These are not isolated experiences. They help build who we are and how we go through that journey and interact with others' journeys as well. I think that's so important. So in your book, you talk about patient love. Mm. Do you think that this is related to everything that you just said and how it has been a driver in your relationship with your son? 100%, 100%. You know, for me, patient love isn't just the simplicity of patience. It's it's in the moments of difficulty. It's in the moments of challenge. It's in accepting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when they are where they are in their growth, right? We may want them to be further along, but they aren't. And so love comes in as they are in support of where they're headed. It's in uh, slowing yourself down enough in the moment to be able to really address what the moment needs, right? It, it's, it's in expressing love out even if you're frustrated and it's something that grows in you as you're raising them and you like I said in the book you know you don't even realize it's growing in you it's developing in you while it's uh, being utilized with them right if I didn't have some of this uh, thinking of his journey as his journey I really always saw my role as his mother to support to love and to plant seeds and to let him choose, right? I didn't ever see it as let me mold you. Instead, it was let me give everything I can and <laughs> then uh, you're off, <laughs> off the races, right? Well, the little period, the off to the races wasn't so great, but um, it's really how I saw it and, and still see it. Absolutely. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. And I can imagine how difficult it must be as a parent or a friend or, you know, a caregiver, a support person to choose patient love and not just want to jump in at every moment. 
throughout all of these experiences that you've had, you've kind of taken something from each one to help you in your next journey. How has your perspective changed since going through this challenge of addiction with Andrew? This is a beautiful question. I think it's a funny thing to say, but I, I say it a lot. I would do it again and again, not just for his, but for mine. Mm. I mean, it was hard and it was painful. And to be able to describe the fear-laced anxiety and pain that you experience, uh, I don't know that I could really fully or adequately describe that. But when I think about what my commitment to my path did for myself and for him, it, uh, it, it's very solidifying for me. So, you know, in that period of time, I had to decide, you know, okay, am I going to move toward my own road yeah. and, and, and let go and allow? And then in doing so, I had two reasons really to be fully committed to the pursuit of my path, my mm -hmm. own life and happiness and an example for him. And those two motivators were were really powerful for me because it's like the Simon Sinek talks about the why, right? It's it was my why to continue to require of myself a higher degree of effort toward bringing the best out of me in uh, in the creation of my business, in the priorities in my life, so that he could see and I could experience what that would uh, end up resulting into. And as it turned out, it's uh, been really extraordinary. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for the both of you. But like you said, you do it again. And I think all the time how difficult some of the parts of my journey have been. But that that feeling of getting through it and learning from it, becoming our best selves and seeing much more clearly on the other side. There's nothing like that. Yeah, I love that you said seeing so clearly on the other side, mm -hmm. right? To remind yourself that when you're in it, that it's the light is there. Keep keep uh, holding belief for the light. Just mm -hmm. keep going because you'll get yeah. there, and then you'll have that clarity. <laughs> Without that journey, exactly. There were two moments that really stood out to me in the book because I, throughout the entire book, I just felt like you were such a. I just had a strength about you. And I think it's those experiences throughout your life that added to that strength. But it was the time that Andrew got arrested and you just went off to yoga. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was like, you go girl. And then the most challenging time when Andrew was in the hospital and you had to make a decision whether or not to go and see him. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> you know, there are just, there are moments and, uh, how present you are in those moments is what truly aids you in, in making the decisions that you need to make in taking the steps that you need to take both for you and for the loved ones in your life. The moment where he's being uh, arrested in front of me, this, you know, so many of these moments are visceral for me where uh, I literally, you, I, you say it, I think about it and it, I uh, can feel it. But for me, you know, in that moment, there was awareness, there was acceptance, and then there was a knowledge that what I needed was to go to yoga, was to get centered, was to be grounded, and this is what I needed to do for me. And you had the strength to do it. Yes, yes. And to lay on the mat and uh, uh, let whatever needed to happen, happen for myself, to just be present with myself in that moment, because what happened was hard, and it was part of his journey, and I really needed to fully connect to myself. So, uh, yeah, that is not easy because it's equally easy to dive into the emotional part of it. And I think by this time I had become practiced at balancing, you know, my, my thought process and my feelings and getting perspective about my feelings. And that that was helpful. And, and the other thing that you bring up, one of the harder moments, and again, it's this presence of mind. It's being fully present. It is paying attention to the moment that you're in. It's not missing anything. It's in the details, not just the thoughts. It's the details of the moment that allowed me to pay attention enough to make the hard choice. Yeah, you talk a lot about living experientially and you kind of describe what that means. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? I think that part of that began for me after my sister passed away. When I, in reflection, could see 
Her life was 19 years and now I had the opportunity to live. It wasn't quick. You know, I didn't quickly have the inside and poof, it all showed up. It wasn't like that, you know. But over time, I came to experience this. To live experientially is not to miss being in the present moment. It is to really take it all in. It is to look at all. It is to use the five senses that we've been given. It's, it's to love it. It's to see it. Mm-hmm. It's to, to bathe in it, right? Even if what I'm doing is in a kayak, I'm feeling myself sitting there. I'm feeling the sun. I'm feeling the fe- a moment of floating and, and that uh, quietness. And I'm allowing, you know, my thoughts to settle. This is living experientially. And I always want to be able to be in that place. And sometimes I will have to mindfully take myself to that place, right? Bring myself into the presence of the experience. But to not miss it, right? We can even do that when we eat. Like we eat, eat, eat to uh, eat the meal. But we're eating and we're having an experience of eating and we miss the, (laughs) the, the texture and the taste it in right i'm always uh i'm always telling my partner because he'll he'll drink you know something really quickly or eat something very quickly and i'm thinking well don't you want to slow down and enjoy that for <laughs> two two seconds maybe yeah just give it two seconds <laughs> not get too wild but <laughs> that's so important one of the best things about this podcast for us is all the amazing and insightful people we've met. Throughout each of our series, we've seen many common threads. That's why we created the Health It's Personal Inspiration Line to celebrate our unique perspectives and let others around us know that we get it too. We teamed up with artist Cloud Ramkey to help bring these common threads to life. We've all dealt with challenges in our lives that make us stronger. Hence, our new favorite saying, thanks for the trauma. We make sure to remind our listeners and friends that you're not alone and that it's always a judgment-free zone because that's where the best conversations start. Our designs are on t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies, water bottles, coffee mugs, stickers, and so much more. These are great gifts for friends, loved ones, educators, caretakers, and advocates to help show your people that you care about their health and well-being. Head over to bonfire.com slash thehippodcast, our website, or our show notes for links to the merchandise, and stay tuned for future inspirational designs and messages too. And on that note, we're dedicated to fighting stigmas, and that kind of plays into that whole you know, journey that we're on to fight those stigmas. And we're all individuals. We're all like we talked about on our journeys. Um, so would you mind sharing some of the common misconceptions surrounding addiction and the families who face these challenges? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a lot, mm-hmm. right? It's. I think sometimes the stigmas come for for human beings in order to sort of create some kind of separation from that which they're looking at in themselves. Things like uh, you can't trust an alcoholic or an addict. While there's some truth to that, there's also this is also not true because it's a human being in a struggle. And that human being may make uh, bad choices and they're responsible for their choices, but they may make bad choices when they're in it, but they're still a good human being Mm -hmm. trying to to get out of the struggle. Things like uh, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. Again, it's a yes and a no, because yes, in that it's a daily choice then to continue on a path of sobriety. No, in that to put that uh, veil, that coat, that that qualification on someone is to almost keep them in a place where you're in judgment of them, not allowing them to evolve out of their struggle. And uh, that uh, is, you know, it's not really fair, I guess. Uh, And it's uh, it's not a right way of thinking. It's not a supportive or loving way of thinking. It's like saying once a human, always a human, right? We're always going to make mistakes. So it's just if you're not an addict, you know, we're not waiting for anyone to just make their next mistake. Right, exactly. Instead, can we approach it more like, okay, this happened. Now what uh, What can we learn here, right? And what do we, what do we take with us? Uh, another one is it's the parent's fault. So when you're a parent of somebody who is struggling with addiction, you 100% go through the process of what did I, what didn't I do, what did I see, what didn't I see, what could I have done? And this is a difficult process to go through. One of the reasons I wanted to write the story is it's very easy to allow yourself to stay in a place of guilt and shame 
this is not, not only is it not healthy, but it's not right. My son would say right here and now, 100% uh, it's the addict's responsibility. They made the choices, their choices to un unpack and, uh, and learn from and move beyond. I, as a parent, would never have made the choice to position him to become an addict, right? Of course not. <laughs> right. And we all do our best. As parents, we do the best job we possibly can to give love, to give lessons, to raise our kids to be healthy, contributing adults, right? So no parent would choose that path. And we're humans as parents all the way. So to say it's the parent's fault is not right. Now, could there be some conditions in life itself and in different dynamics that, that contribute? Sure, there can. But to say it's the parent's fault is flat out wrong. Genetic is another one, right? And again, maybe, maybe not, right? Because my father was a lifelong alcoholic. I am neither an alcoholic nor an addict. And my son became an addict. So is it genetic or isn't it genetic? I, the, the thing is, there's more than one answer. Yeah, it's a little bit more nuanced than a soundbite that people enjoy, yes, especially yes, exactly. these days. <laughs> they just want that one quick statement to, <laughs> well, this is the answer, right? They want that quick, easy answer, but it's... That's the hardest part is just understanding that none of the complicated, difficult topics that we cover or that we can all face in life are so simple. They're all complicated. <laughs> and a lot of the time, I like to think of when I'm trying to understand something new that the first thing I look at is the science and how things work in the brain or with behaviors or genetics. And then I look at the humanity aspect and sometimes that completely unravels the science <laughs> it all comes down to just what kind of person you are and who you are and that's a great point you know some everyone makes mistakes and some are more impactful than others i love the way you said that like the science is is truth and so humanity right and, and all that comes with that so yes what would you say to parents who are looking for signs or preventative measures deborah so a couple of things, actually. There are some really good articles I would love to share the links to, and I don't know if that's a possibility. And you guys- Absolutely. Yeah, please, we'll put them in the show notes. Okay, so I'll send those to you. First and foremost, to, to not say not my kid, I said that, by the way, and I was wrong. To instead say it's possible. To instead say, okay, I realize that as my children go, they're going to be out in the world and they're going to be exposed to things. To have conversations, real conversations, maybe when they're younger, first through story, to create a picture, it's a little bit easier to, to approach it with story when they're younger, and then uh, with clear truths and questions as they get older. Questions that will allow them to think first, what would I do and how would I say no? And while I did some of those things, I do think I probably, especially the earlier part, I could have done some of those better. Uh, I'm a big person for owning what I own. So I will say that in retrospect, one thing I really wish I would have done was exercise his decision-making muscle early. And what I mean by that is, okay, here's the situation, Andrew. There's this direction and this direction. What do you see and what do you think? And let him come to the answer and then ask him what he thinks that would result in and why he would choose it and then to do that frequently in any of the situations he's in so that he can begin to realize that he can observe the situation look at the sides of the situation and make a good choice mm. and so that he can become confident in his ability to make a good choice that's great advice in terms of things that you see you know some of it again like i said in the beginning it, it seems like normal teenage behavior but it's but when it's when you see elevated anger, when you see uh, big emotional mood swings, especially the lack of eye contact is something. You know, they don't want to look at you. It may be because they're high, or it's because they feel some sense of guilt for what they've just been doing, and they don't want to be confronted by it. The more shutting the door, although some of that's normal too and if you find things in their room like here's the thing it's their room it's your house because if you find things in their room like uh, pieces of foil if you see black soot if you find empty pen 
um, you know, that they remove the actual pen piece from the pen itself and it creates kind of like a straw. You see things like this, you have something you absolutely need to address. Yeah, because if the parent hasn't had an experience with drugs themselves, they might not know what to be looking for. For sure, for sure. And even when you have, <laughs> for me, it took a little bit for me to actually see, wow, this is actually happening, you know. And generationally, too. Even if you have an experience with drugs when you were young, it could be wildly different from what your child's experiencing. 100 percent. And, and in reality, there, there was probably when I was a kid, there was a limited number of drugs. Now there's a multitude. And that's hard to uh, keep your arms around, right? Absolutely. You know, something we talk a lot about with health and with all aspects of life are that something that we see as a common theme is mindfulness, awareness, education, and love, of course. And having those hard conversations. Yeah, because Deborah, you mentioned, you know, going through the role playing. I try to do that as often as I can. But because these topics are taboo and also because my teen is resistant to having any sort of conversation about about anything hard, about hard things yeah yeah so I almost have to like ambush them in the car those conversations are really tough and because sometimes parents think that mentioning things like drug addiction or suicide gives kids ideas and when in reality research shows that having those conversations make a bigger impact positively mm-hmm even if they stumble a little bit, to have had the communication allows them to have thoughts and, and draw some conclusions about it and, and maybe think through, okay, right, to really consider before they're in the moment, because that's something that happens with a lot of teens. They're in the moment, they haven't considered it, they haven't talked about it. And let's be honest, there's a whole different ecosystem for our kids when they're in high school, right? There's a want and a desire to be included and accepted. And where do I fit in? And, and a lot of struggles emotionally as they're trying to learn, right? So, so they can face with a situation and having not had any previous conversation, it's a little bit easier to uh, just say yes instead of just say no. That kind of reminds me of even for parents or just anyone going through a situation like this, like you said, we have to build those pathways, right? Um, we have to get get used to those ideas um, before we, you know, so we're not just caught off guard in the moment. I've never thought about this before. Um, so I feel like your book is a really great, you know, part of that experience for people. If they read your book, they might start thinking about things they might not have, you know, considered before. Uh, and that kind of leads me to wondering what ultimately led you to writing this book. And if you don't mind sharing, what has been the response about the book so far? me a little emotional yeah it's big so there's two there's two crystal clear reasons for me to share the story the way that i did and number one hope i want people who are in the middle of it to see that, that there can be a different outcome and, and that they don't have to resign themselves to the outcome they fear or the situation that they're in right now. That is number one, the most important thing to me. And the second relates to uh, as the loved one, as the parent, you still deserve to have a happy life. I know what the shame and the pain feels like. And this is not the cloak that we're supposed to be living underneath and you deserve to be happy, and you deserve to realize your dreams, and you deserve to step forward, even if someone in your life is making choices that you wouldn't make for them. I feel so passionate about this. Those are the two reasons, really. And I took, I will say, uh, it took some time for me to get comfortable with the vulnerability of being wide open and really real right. about the story. And I required of myself to be real because for me, it's, uh, there's, no, there's not any benefit to not being that wide open. If I really want the book to benefit, I, want to, I have to open up. 
So the response, uh, I want to say, uh, you know, my amazing editor and uh, overall book partner extraordinaire, Elizabeth Lyons, she asked me this question in the beginning. She said, Deborah, if it only helps one person, do you still want to do it? And it was the most beautiful question she could have asked me because it was hands down 100% yes. And it put me in this right framework. And as it's turned out, since we've released the book, it's true that it isn't just one, right? And one mother who sent me a message via messenger, she said, to realize that this lonely journey is not just mine. I have received so many different messages from uh, parents and uh, uh, mothers especially that it, it made them feel not alone. It uh, has, has, has given them hope and that is um, such a meaningful thing for me to uh, receive. Well, I have to say as a mother, as I was reading it, it was really hard to read because I have to, this is one of my biggest fears, you know, as a mom. Um, and so reading it and kind of watching you go through the journey, it was hard and it was also really inspiring and it helped me find a strength inside myself ahead of time. And I feel thankful for that because I think I have a tendency to take on those feelings and blame myself or, you know, I would, you know, I wouldn't pick up my yoga mat. I'd probably be a, in a ball in the corner and um, that's not productive. And so I felt your strength and I felt the strength inside of me ahead of time, knowing that if those moments come that I almost felt like I could see what that would look like. And um, I feel very lucky for that. Thank you. Nice. Thank you so much for saying that. That honors me so much. And I, I love that. I love that. Like uh, even that is an example of a why that I would do it again. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love what you've been saying about making sure that you as the caretaker still have a life and dreams and experiences. What were some of the ways that you kept your spirits up or stayed grounded during this time? I know you mentioned yoga. Mm. Yeah, so yoga was really big for me and still is to this day. Uh, it's a really beautiful way to bring myself uh, into presence and in con into connection with myself. Uh, music, uh, music is huge in my life. I have a million playlists, maybe not a million, mm -hmm. but I created playlists for different things to give me in, uh, inspiration to, if I knew I was in a place where I needed uh, healing, I created a playlist for that so that I could just feel the music and feel where I was. That's, that, uh, that was something that was really big in my healing journey and is now a big part of my life. Um, climbing, mountains, hiking, this being in nature. Uh, I have used hiking in more than one way uh, and that has been uh, incredibly beneficial for me. Being in nature in terms of feeling connected to the spiritual aspect of myself is enormous, right? And it was in being willing to to explore what is it that really uh, inspires me, that elevates me, that lights me up inside, doesn't, you know, uh, all of those things unfolded into these, these preferences of uh, things that I love that, uh, that really um, add the color in my life. Yeah. Is that why you tied mountain climbing into your book cover? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love the cover art. Thank you so much. Yeah, the mountain is meaningful for me, too, because uh, I would go and I would start a climb. And I like the I like hikes that go up and then go down. For me, I visualize whatever it is I'm sorting through, trying to solve, uh, right? I visualize that. And as I climb, you know, I allow my your mind. Uh, it's the hiking actually creates a a sort of different um, aspect of your brain functioning, right? Because the body is in motion and the brain is is paying attention to this. And so there's some connection to the subconscious, right? So you, so you're, you have this experience of climbing. And for me, uh, I would process. And then, and as that process was happening, and as I would get closer to the top, I would become clearer and clearer, right? And then there I get to the top, I would give myself a pause. 
And then on the way down, I would allow clarity to come and it would come. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It became kind of a process for me and uh, still is, honestly. And uh, I, I love it. So the mountain is very meaningful for me. I would call it on Facebook. I would say a long time ago, it's Mountain Monday. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. For every listener, you know, you deserve to love yourself, to uh, give grace to yourself. You deserve happiness. You, you, you deserve to explore the things that add the zest to your life. And I, I highly encourage you to commit to the pursuit of that, even if there's a struggle like addiction. Um, and to, to really be in a practice of holding belief for the outcome that you want, no matter what. So Deborah, you've been so wonderful. Uh, before we wrap up, I'd just like to know if you had any books you've been reading or resources that you find really valuable or something that's been lifting your spirits lately. We'd love to hear that as well. Uh, in terms of what I'm reading, so I'm reading two books right now. One of them is called The Buddha and the Badass. It's about... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm loving it. And then the other is Right of a Lifetime. Uh, and that is by the CEO of Walt Disney. It's actually a good and inspiring book for me too. They're both uh, different in terms of the approach as it relates to life and business. And and so I'm loving those. I feel like The Buddha and the Badass could have been the title of your book as well. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Enjoyed uh, being with you, and I really am grateful that you allowed the opportunity to share because it's really meaningful to me and important to me that anyone who is struggling, no matter what the struggle is, um, that they may find a glimmer of hope. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I already know who I'm going to share this episode with after it's released, and I'm very excited to share it with certain you know individuals who are important to me. Oh gosh, likewise. And I, and I, I thank you also because conversation people don't have and don't want to have. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You guys have a great day too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of health. It's personal. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts for bonus episodes and new releases every Wednesday. The health. It's personal podcast is produced by me, McKenna Udi and hosted with the Phronesis Health Initiative team, Karen Jively and Sean Tingle. Special thanks to portrait artist Alexander, musical contributor Bernie Ramke, and to our guests and experts for their kindness and bravery in sharing their stories each week. Please listen, subscribe, engage, and send us topics we can explore that would help you on your journey. Because health, it's personal.